Got questions? The Bible has answers. We'll help you find them. Welcome to the God Questions Podcast with Shay Hoodman, President of God Questions Ministries. Welcome to the Got Questions Podcast. On today's episode, I have with me Dr. Jonathan McClatchy of Sattler College. He's a professor there and also a good friend of mine. Uh, we go way back. If you listen to one of the early podcasts, you will hear a little bit more about how Jonathan and I originally met and how he totally schooled me at chess without even looking at the board. But that's not the topic today. So a couple episodes ago, um, we had a guest on who spoke about young earth creationism. So today we're going to focus a little bit more on the old earth creationist viewpoint and how that is actually a biblically plausible viewpoint. So Jonathan, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Shay. It's great to be with you again. Yes. So I discovered, I'd read some of your articles on this probably a couple of years ago. And I found myself adopting some of the language because I thought you said it better than I did. So with my opening question, I just want to ask, so you've said something to the effect of a plain reading of the early chapters of Genesis would lead to a young earth creationist viewpoint. But your question is, is the plain reading, the proper reading. So explain what you mean by that so that our audience can get a better grasp of um, the direction you take with these passages. Right. Sure. So when when people typically make uh, arguments for young earth creationism from scripture, there are two implicit premises. One is that the plain reading of the biblical text or the simplest reading of the biblical text uh, would incline one towards adopting a young earth perspective. The second premise is that the face value reading or the simplest reading should uh, always be the one that is uh, preferred as our uh, interpretation of the biblical text. And I I would uh, question that particular uh, assumption that we should always favor the simplest or most face value reading of the biblical text. Um, When we encounter a text that appears to be in conflict with uh, the natural sciences, there are three possibilities. Uh, One is that we've misevaluated the scientific evidence. And that is typically the way that young earth creationist organizations will argue. Or alternatively, we have misevaluated the text of scripture and actually our interpretation of the Bible is an error. Or thirdly, the biblical text itself is in fact in error. And then we'd have to, of course, um, appraise the ramifications of that finding. Uh, I think that um, although uh, the interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11 and it's uh, relating it to our modern scientific understanding is certainly a challenge. I, I don't want to deny that. But I think that we have to get it into proper perspective and understand that for much of the discussion, with some exceptions like the debate over the historical Adam and so forth, I don't think that it's critical to the veracity of Christianity. What about the other two options? So we misevaluated the scientific evidence or we misevaluated the text of scripture. Well, um, let, let's take, for example, um, a very well-known text, um, Joshua chapter 10, um, and it's I'm sure your um, viewers are familiar with this text where uh, God um, is purported to cause the sun to stand still in the sky in order for Joshua to complete his battle. And uh, this was often interpreted um, prior to the Copernican Revolution as evidence for the, the fact that the sun moves in relation to the earth that supported the geocentric model, um, or so it was thought. And, um, now that we now understand that, in fact, the heliocentric model is correct, not the geocentric model, we Christians generally understand that to be using phenomenological language. So science can and often does shape and influence and inform our uh, approach to the biblical text. 
and can sometimes illuminate and clarify um, the biblical text. Um, so when we're evaluating between these three options that I listed um, earlier, that we've evaluate, misevaluated the scientific data, that we've misevaluated the text of scripture, or the biblical text is an error, what we're really asking is which of those options is the least epistemically costly. So for example, um, with let's take the example with, uh, let's suppose that, um, so we have the scientific data that confirms the heliocentric model is correct and the geocentric model is false. Um, which is more reasonable that we've misevaluated the scientific evidence for uh, heliocentrism, uh, the fact that the planets orbit the sun, or that we've misinterpreted the text of scripture um, or the biblical text is an error. Um, and I certainly think that to propose that uh, the, we've misevaluated the scientific evidence is a very, is very, very far-fetched. I think that the evidence for uh, the heliocentric model is, is overwhelming. So then that leaves us with the remaining two options. And of those, I think that there's no um, problem with taking the view that we've misevaluated the text of scripture and actually the text is using phenomenological language, which is how virtually all Christians understand that text and others like it. So it doesn't necessarily follow. Um, in, so in conclusion, then it doesn't necessarily follow that if a text is the most face value reading of the text, if an interpretation is the most face value reading of the text, that that always should be the reading that's preferred if it puts if it puts um, yeah, the Bible in conflict with scientific evidence. Does that make sense? It does. No, I mean, we've been asked this question many, many times about, well, why does the Bible seem to teach that the sun re revolves around the earth? And it's like, well, if you're going to interpret it that way, so does my weatherman every morning when he refers to the sunrise and the sunset. So the Bible using the language of appearance, so to speak, is to me, it's not a problem at all. And that God's purpose in writing the Bible was not to give ancient people a perfectly scientific, scientifically accurate understanding of how the solar system works. He was just, from our appearance, from our vantage point, it looks like the sun rises and the sun sets. It looks like the sun revolves on the earth, but now we know thousands of years later that that's not the case. So no, I, what you said makes perfect sense. Um, that's jumping to the text in Genesis. I'd, I'd really just love, how do you, in your, as somebody who's very scientifically trained, what is your reading of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 specifically regarding the, the age of the earth? And how did you come to that conclusion? Sure. So um, obviously, that's a very broad topic. So probably sure. won't be able to cover all, all 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, give my perspective and all that. But let me just give a few key points. If people are interested in diving into more detail on this, I do have a series of articles on my website where I unpack this in more detail. Um, I've covered um, Genesis 1 through 5 there. I'm planning to write also an, an article concerning the flood and Tower of Babel and, and such as well. But um, there's quite a lot of detail there if people are interested in, in diving into that. Now, if we go over to um, the biblical text then um, from Genesis 1. So, so in Genesis 1, it says, um, starting in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, so that's the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1. And then verse 3 begins with the phrase, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Um, and so you'll notice that um, uh, verse 3 is the first occurrence in the Genesis 1 passage of the phrase, And God said, which if you look and if you look, study the, the text of Genesis 1 carefully, you'll notice that each of the days of creation week begins with the phraseology, And God said, And God said, And God said, which implies or suggests that Verses 1 and 2 actually occurred prior to the first day. Um, the first day actually doesn't begin until verse 3 of Genesis 1. And if that is the case, if Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 
occurred uh, an indefinite period of time prior to the first day of creation week, then the, bio, the biblical text is actually silent on the age of the earth and indeed the age of the cosmos. Um, now, that's a separate question from what you think of the age of the biosphere. Um, but regarding the age of the universe and the age of the earth, it, doesn't, it seems to me that scripture is completely silent on that. And if we look at the, the, the days of creation week, I, the, the view that I would, uh, or the, the view that is most closely aligned with the perspective I would subscribe to would be that of um, C. John Collins, who is a biblical scholar. Uh, he was on the translation committee for the English Standard Version uh, of the Bible. And uh, he's, um, he's an expert in Hebrew. He ta- he is, he's written a number of books um, dealing with, with these issues, uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, the view that he would subscribe to in regards to the days of creation week is to interpret the days as literal 24-hour days. Uh, and by the way, um, one, one, one false dichotomy I often see in this debate is young earth creationists will often make it sound like the debate is between those that think that the, the word yom in Genesis 1 is correctly translated to 24-hour or 12-hour day, um, and those that think it should be like Hugh Ross's camp, that it should be translated as a, an indefinite but finite period of time. Um, I, I don't think that that's an appropriate dichotomy. I, I think that as, as an old earth creationist, I think that the, the correct and appropriate translation of the Hebrew word yom is indeed um, a solar, regular day. Um, I think Hugh Ross is, is mistaken on that. So the view that um, uh, C. John Collins uh, takes um, is that the days of creation week are are not like our earth days, but rather they're not identical to our earth days, but rather they're an- analogical to our earth days. So it sets and establishes the the rhythm of our work week, the, the rhythm of the um, human pattern of work and rest. Six days we are to labor and the Sabbath day we are to rest. Uh, so I think that is the purpose that they are not identical to our earth days, or at least you don't necessarily need to read them as identical to our, our earth days, but rather they are analogical for our earth days, for our mm-hmm. human w- rhythm of work and rest. Does that make sense? It does. No, that's helpful. Um, um, an, an interesting thing I often hear from the young earth creations is the proposal, and we even talked about this briefly before the show, that, um, and I know this isn't your necessarily your area of expertise, your expertise is far more in biology than in geology, but what do you think of the argument that God created the earth and the universe with the quote unquote appearance of age? And that explains why the universe and the earth seems to be much older than the young earth creationist viewpoint, which would say it is approximately 6,000 years old. Right. So one attempt to salvage uh, young earth creationism that I often encounter in particular from lay creationists, um, though less frequently also from academic creationists, is to postulate that the earth and the universe were uh, created mature in a manner akin to Christ's transformation of water into mature wine in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And uh, uh, the the argument is, well, God, Jesus transformed the water into wine. And so if you'd inspected the wine, it would look like mature wine. But in fact, it was young. And so could something similar not be true of the, the earth and the universe and so forth. And to many, that postulation has the attraction of allowing one to dismiss the, the evidence of vast age as saying nothing about how old the earth actually is in a similar manner to how Adam, having been created mature, would appear to be much older than he actually was. Um, but I would argue, actually, this explanation doesn't work because the geological record appears to tell a story of historical events, um, including the uh, existence of animal death, for example, long before men, uh, which, of course, um, young earth uh, creationist interpretations typically preclude. Um, there's also um, a remarkable correlation 
And this is one of the this is one of the um, lines of evidence that persuades me of uh, an old Earth, is that there's this remarkable correlation between the dates that are yielded by the radiometric dating methods and the types of fossils that you find in the strata. So, for instance, if you were to give me uh, rock dating to the say the Cambrian period um, from anywhere in the world, um, doesn't matter which continent, I could tell you with precision what fossils you'll find and what you won't find. Um, you'll find things like um, trilobites, anomalocaris, hallucigenia, um, uh, wawaxia, and so forth, opabinia. And you won't find things like whales, for example. And that, that correlation is something which is very surprising on the young Earth view, but it's not very surprising at all on an old Earth view. And so that, um, that uh, tends to support, I think, the old earth uh, interpretation. Um, also, the fact that our, ob- so our observation of distant galaxies, um, which are often you know, millions or tens of millions, hundreds of millions of light years away from the earth. And a lot light year in astronomy, of course, is a, me- a measure of um, distance, not of time. So when we say that light from distant galaxies took millions of light, um, is millions of light years away from us, then what we mean by that is that it takes millions of years to be observed by an observer on earth because light it takes time to travel. So that, that observation is highly expected on an older Earth interpretation, but rather surprising on a young Earth interpretation. Now, some creationists, uh, not the more scholarly ones, but um, a common approach that's taken um, by lay creationists, um, and this would uh, comport with the, the analogy that I, I mentioned with uh, the converting of the, the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, is the, the idea of positing light created in transit where God created the light already on the way to earth. And so we, so, so that um, it could be observed even uh, from an, an earthly, by an earthly observer, even though the earth is in fact young. But that idea I think won't help here because we are actually able to observe events in deep space, such as supernova, which are exploding stars. Um, and on such a view, um, that would be an illusion um, since the light would never have actually left those events in the first place. We're actually observing light that is depicting events that, um, it, it didn't actually, the, the light that we're observing didn't actually leave those events. And so we're actually observing these cosmic illusions, which um, I, I feel deeply uncomfortable with, um, that God is creating this cosmic slideshow or this cosmic illusion for us to observe. So one can attempt to um, postulate uh, convoluted rationalizations of this distant starlight enigma, um, as some have done, then uh, I, I would argue that it still has to be recognized as far less surprising on an old Earth view than it is on a young Earth view. And thus, it's evidence that is confirmatory of the old Earth view. Um, one common mistake, by the way, that I often see young Earth creationists make is that they spend a lot of time trying to show that they can make the data fit with a young earth view and they can find ways of making it consistent with a young earth view. And there are ways of doing that for most of the evidence for an old earth. You can find a way to make it fit with a young earth view. If you try hard enough, if you're prepared to invoke enough ad hoc auxiliary hypotheses, you can make the data fit. Mm-hmm. But the same is true for virtually anything, for any hypothesis. And this is how conspiracy, this is how conspiracy theories argue. They make, they find a way of making any data fit so that no matter how much the data contradicts the thesis, they, 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 find, they, they come up with an explanation for how it must fit. And the, the real question that we want to ask is um, not, can we make the data fit, which is usually yes, you can, but rather, is this data more surprising on a young Earth view, or is it more surprising on an old Earth view? Mm-hmm. And to the extent that it's 
more surprising on a young Earth view than is on an old Earth view. It tends to be evidence that this confirms the young Earth view relative to the old Earth view. Um, so I think that's an important distinction. So although yes, you can you can read uh, people like Danny Faulkner or Jason Lyle or Ross Humphreys, and they come up with these elaborate attempts to explain the distant starlight enigma. But at the end of the day, it's still evidence that tends to confirm the old Earth view because that data is very, very well expect, very well predicted by an old Earth view, but very quite surprising on a young Earth perspective. Um, and so that that's another issue. Um, a further difficulty with the young Earth view in terms of the science is the the need to postulate that all the meteor impacts with the Earth have taken place during the past six thousand years. Um, so, for example, the one that um, caused the meteor crater in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, which is thought to have resulted in the extinction of the dinosaurs some 65 million years ago, um, or the, the meteor that caused the Bredefort um, Dome um, in Pontchartrain in South Africa, which I've, I've visited, in fact. Now, the, the dome in South Africa is thought to have taken place, that, that meteor impact, um, some 2 billion years ago. Now, if either of those impacts, um, and the dome is thought to be the, the largest meteor crater, I think, in the world, or at least one of the biggest meteor craters. So if either of those impacts had occurred in the last 6,000 years, as required by um, young Earth creationism, then the effect on human civilization and animal life or in the globe would have been devastating. Uh, but there's no evidence of such impacts that have occurred in recorded history. So um, now some geologists um, have argued that the, the dome in, in South Africa is the result of some volcanic event, but this is only a minority or a fringe view, which is not uh, generally accepted. The consensus view among um, experts on the subject is that it's a meteor impact zone. Um, and there's various lines of evidence to support that, such as um, evidence of um, shock and the, the quartz grains, um, evidence of uh, rapid melting of the granite, which turns it into glass and so forth. So again, uh, also another related point is the, the uh, meteor impacts on the surface of the moon. Um, I mean, are we really to cram all of those meteor impacts into the last 6,000 years? It seems to me to be rather far-fetched. Now, you can say that if you want to, but at the end of the day, is that evidence more surprising on a young Earth view, or is it more surprising on an older Earth view? And these things start to add up. They start to accumulate and point, I, I think, quite powerfully to um, an older Earth view, not a young Earth view. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one argument sometimes given uh, in support of a young Earth creationist uh, view is um, certain limiting factors um, that suggest kind of an upper limit on the age of the Earth. So, for example, a very popular one that um, if you come across a young Earth creationist who's interested in science, is kind of a guarantee that you'll come across this argument. And that is the presence of soft tissue in dinosaur bones that has been discovered, which is taken by many young Earth creationists to indicate that uh, the bones cannot, in fact, be millions of years old because the biological tissue disintegrates rapidly. Now, I would agree with the identification of those collagen fragments that that they come from dinosaur tissue. Um, But I don't consider the preservation of those dinosaur collagen fragments, um, especially in an environment devoid of oxygen, water, and microorganisms, to be uh, particularly surprising on an older older Earth hypothesis uh, because the basic structural unit of collagen is an intertwining of three protein chains, uh, which is known as a triple helix. Uh, and the individual chains um, at particular points along the, the length of the triple helix form chemical bonds with each other, and that forms uh, crosslinks. A numerous uh, collagen triple helices assemble to form collagen fibrils, and these in turn assemble to form collagen fibers. And given just the highly intertwined and cross-linked uh, it is the structure of collagen, it's not particularly surprising to find fragments of this molecule preserved for six to eight million years. 
Um, in fact, uh, uh, Fazali Rana, who's a, a, an old earth uh, um, Christian uh, biochemist, um, has a book on this topic called Dinosaur Blood in the Age of the Earth, which I, I commend to people who are interested in reading up more on that particular subject. But does, does that um, make sense in terms of the general issues? Oh, it does for sure. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. Like we talked about before the show started. I mean, I, I am not a scientist, but I, I love studying this stuff. And I and probably maybe for my, our last question, I really want to get your insight in. Because one of the things I talked about in the Young Earth Creationist video um, interview was once you get to a literal atom that you have already said that you think is a crucial part of the Christian faith, go to the book of Romans, how important it is to have a literal atom from which all humanity springs. Once we get to that point, generally speaking, young earth creationists and old earth creationists can agree on the main doctrines of Christianity. It's stuff that's before that. So that being the case, why do you think there's so much, um, I don't know what the right word is, like animosity, so to speak, from from both sides? And is that is what, is what I'm saying accurate in that as long as you have a literal atom, the time frame of what came before that ultimately really doesn't matter to the Christian faith in terms of whether it's it's true or not. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, the historical atom, as I said earlier, is very important um, because the biblical doctrine of original sin is uh, hinges upon the historicity of Adam and Eve. Uh, I have, a, have an article on my website. People want to dig into the details of the historical atom, why I think it's biblically important uh, and why I think that it's scientifically defensible. I personally um, would push Adam and Eve back into, say, two or three hundred thousand years ago. Um, I um, uh, I think so. This is sometimes argued by population geneticists that uh, you cannot have you cannot have all of humanity descended from a primordial couple because there's too much genetic diversity. Uh, and so the the argument is that well, the human population size never got below ten thousand individuals at the time. And uh, I am not. I don't buy that argument. I I think that you can make such an argument if um, you're talking about an Adam and Eve that existed in the last you know, hundred thousand years or so. But if you're prepared to push them back further than that, I think that you can certainly. Um, I think the data can certainly be consistent um, or interpreted along those lines. Um, and there's been papers published. Um, Ola Hostier, who's for example, um, who's a mathematician, population geneticist, has done some work on this, showing that. You can have um, all of humanity descended from a primordial couple um, within you know, the past few hundred thousand years. Of course, the the issue then is well, what about um, the biblical genealogies in Genesis five and eleven? Um, and uh, I would be inclined to posit gaps in those uh, genealogies. We know that there are other genealogical records in the Bible which have gaps, demonstrable, demonstrably so. Now, of course, one might still argue or object. Well. Yeah, we have examples of genealogies with gaps, but we don't have any examples of genealogies with that many gaps, um, which is true. But uh, and so I, I would own the fact that this is an ad hoc postulation, though I would argue that invoking ad hoc auxiliary hypotheses is justified if and only if the evidence that confirms your overall thesis is sufficient to bear the weight of it. And in my assessment, the evidence for Christianity is quite strong, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus um, and so forth from prophecy. And so that provides sufficient indirect reason to think that there was an historical Adam, even if um, we don't have any direct evidence for an historical Adam and Eve. And so that can provide a, a basis for making that uh, postulation in regards to the, the genealogies. In terms of animosity, um, I think that um, it is very unfortunate that a lot of 
young earth creationists um, will claim that older earth creationists are you know, compromising scripture and so forth. Um, that's, that's often the source of the animosity from young earth towards old earth. And I think that that is incorrect because, well, I mean, it's going to vary from, from person to person at their motivation um, but and their general approach to these issues. But uh, from at least from my side, I, I'm simply trying to read both the scientific evidence and the biblical text faithfully and come to the view which I think most faithfully represents the state of, of the evidence because God hasn't just given us the, the book of scripture, he's also given us the book of nature as well. Um, and both of those, I think, are legitimate sources of information and we're trying to work out, okay, how do those fit together and can science actually illuminate and clarify elements and aspects of the biblical text. Um, in terms of... Um, Old Earth uh, animosity from the old Earth side towards the young Earth creationists. Uh, the source of that is typically um, a frustration. I think that it is a bad testimony to the academy um, that people look at young Earth creationism and see that it doesn't really stand up, and so it brings the gospel into disrepute. So I think that's a common frustration that old Earth creationists share in regards to um, young Earth creationism, and uh, and also I think. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's probably the main source of um, animosity from both sides towards the other. Does that make sense? It does. No, and thank you. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. Maybe at some point later, I would, I've never wanted the podcast to be like a format for debate, but I would love to have a, a reasonable old earth creationist and a reasonable young earth creationism on just to discuss some of these issues. Because again, I am not a scientist. What I wanted to kind of do with these interviews point to the fact that from from evangelical Christians, you can be either as long as you have a literal Adam from which original sin, the need for salvation comes from. So, Jonathan, thank you for being on the show today. I enjoyed your insights and learned a couple of new things that I hadn't thought of before. So some more stuff for me to ponder in the coming days. This has been the Got Questions podcast with Jonathan McClatchy, professor at Sattler College. And he mentioned several links that he would like people to read. We'll include those on um, the, the show notes, on the comments field and on YouTube, but also at podcast.gotquestions.org. So Got Questions, Bible has answers, and we'll help you find them. Your questions, biblical answers. The Got Questions podcast. Check us out at podcast.gotquestions.org.